It's the 12th of December, 2015, and this is episode 272. This show is intended for informational and educational purposes only. Cryptocurrency is new, exciting, and empowering, but we're not experts, just obsessed companions walking the road towards a more peer-to-peer future. Hi, and welcome to Let's Talk Bitcoin, a twice-weekly show about the ideas, people, and projects building the new digital economy and the future of money. My name is Adam B. Levine, and today we're talking about some of the fundamental building blocks in cryptocurrency as we know it. Last month, I attended the Future of Digital Currency Conference in San Francisco, and today I'm happy to share two of my favorite talks from that event. We end today's show with Peter Todd, core developer and frequent devil's advocate, as he discusses the good, bad, and ugly of proof of work. But first, Eric Lombrazo has been thinking about full nodes on the Bitcoin network for some time now. It's a big problem, and his are some of the most interesting solutions that I've yet heard. Enjoy the show. Eric Lombroso, co-CEO and CTO of Cifix Corporation and Bitcoin Core Developer. He'll be talking on incentives of full nodes. Um, first, I'd like to thank Digital Garage for organizing this, this great event and giving us all a chance to speak before you. Uh, so I appreciate that very much. Um, so what is a full node? In the very early days of Bitcoin, uh, way in the, back in the beginning of time, uh, basically, every single, uh, every single device did the same thing as every other device. Uh, uh, initially, there were not that many of them, but uh, basically the idea was that um, they would all be, they, 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 it was designed really with the idea that all of them participated in a network equally. Um, but in truth, uh, as time has gone on, we've realized that there's uh, certain different aspects of what it actually entails to be a full node. And uh, uh, so, for instance, full nodes need to be able to find other peers, right? You need to be able to uh, locate other machines that can speak the same protocol and exchange messages. Then you need to be able to actually exchange the messages, so you need to relay the messages and uh, primarily you need to be able to propagate blocks and you need to be able to propagate transactions. You need a place to store uh, those uh, transactions uh, before they get into blocks so you can create blocks and so you can see whether new transactions that are coming in uh, are valid, whether they're spending coins that actually exist. Um, and you need uh, mining, which uh, is what actually uh, uh, creates the blocks. And uh, once, you, once you've uh, created a block, once you've mined some Bitcoin, uh, you need a, a way to, to manage your keys so you can actually redeem those Bitcoins that, uh, or you know, claim those Bitcoins that you actually earned. And then uh, you need to be able to validate uh, all the transactions that you're seeing. Um, you need to be able to uh, know what coins actually exist so you know whether new transactions that are coming in are actually spending coins that exist or not. And you need to store the entire blockchain, right? So that's a lot of things that, uh, that a full node needs to do. Um, and in the original Satoshi design, uh, it was thought, okay, well, there's sufficient incentive for people to run a full node. And so there's a reason why, you know, it's, it's, it's okay, we can, we can do all this stuff. But if you look at the Satoshi white paper, uh, section six, uh, he specifically says uh, that uh, there's only really one incentive for, uh, for, for running a full node, and that's mining. Uh, mining is gonna be a more, a more uh, um, profitable use of CPUs, according to, to Satoshi, than other uses of, of your computing power. So, so that's the rational, use, uh, rational justification for why you'd want to run a full node. Um, however, as we've seen uh, in the last uh, few years, uh, this, this hasn't actually turned out to, to be as promised, unfortunately. 
So there's only one mentioned incentive in the entire Bitcoin white paper, and that's mining. Uh, that's kind of sad because uh, there's a lot of other stuff that needs to be done in order to, to, for the Bitcoin network to function properly uh, that are not incentivized. So we saw in the last few years, mining technology go from CPUs to GPUs to FPGAs and finally to ASICs. Every single time we're getting a, a hardware technology that is less and less capable of doing all the other stuff that you saw on that page. So we're getting very, very specialized mining hardware that's basically just dumb hardware. All it does is search for magic numbers, and it can't do anything else. So then, of course, you had the formation of mining pools. Uh, mining pools made it so that uh, there was even more of an incentive to just run these dumb miners that uh, didn't really do anything else for the network. You have centralization um, uh, forces at play here because uh, latency is costly to miners. So there's more of a, you know, there, there's, a, there's incentives for, for miners to, to, you know, for, for mining pool operators to, to run bigger and bigger operations. And so you end up with this really, really huge, uh, this, this kind of perverse set of incentives for, for, for you know, pools and, and miners where, where the miners are just running these dumb boxes and, and basically the pool operators are the ones that are providing the, the services to the network, all the other services, and are also giving work to the miners. There's a few, <clears throat> sorry, there's a few proposals that have been put out for, for, you know, for solving this issue, but unfortunately I won't be able to get into them today, but I'd like to talk more if you want uh, later on. Um, so mining kind of gets off the picture here. So what's left? If you look at the Section 8 of the Satoshi white paper, uh, you see that uh, you know, he's talking about simplified payment verification. Uh, it, it was already being thought that not everyone was going to want to run a full node. So you'd still be able to verify some of what you wanted to verify, but not necessarily everything. You wouldn't, not everyone would need to run a full node. And interestingly enough, this is the only use of the term full node or full network node in the entire uh, Satoshi white paper. So it's kind of defined negatively in the sense that a full node is something that, that does everything else. And, and this is like, a, you know, we're, you know th this is a particular type of node that is not a full node. And there's only one other use of the term full in the Satoshi white paper, which is full block, which is talking about fraud proofs, which actually never happened. So uh, this is, a, this is a, something that we definitely need to work on. Um, so the wallet goes away. So today we're basically left with this. This is what a full node actually consists of. And none of these things are paid for. Nobody's paying anyone to run anything that does any of these things. Um, and you can think, okay, well, this is gonna be good. I mean, we have a, a network of volunteers that are, that are willing to you know, put up the resources to run nodes so we can keep on, get, you know, have the network operating. But uh, it's kind of sad to think that, you know, uh, None of these computers are getting rewarded at all for, for all that we're doing. And every single thing that we're doing on this network is being, all the costs for all the propagation of all blocks, transactions, all the validation, everything is being externalized onto them. So, you know, we hear about proposals for increasing blocks. And, I mean, that would not be nearly as controversial if it were not for the fact that we're really externalizing costs that are not being accounted for. And uh, this, this creates perverse incentives in, in the economy. Um, so BitNodes is a website that's been trying to measure, you know, get some metrics for, for uh, how many actual nodes there are out there. And uh, trying to measure how many nodes are out there is actually really, really, really hard. Um, there's been several people that have been, you know, making valiant attempts at it. And it turns out that, uh, it, it, you know, it depends on what you're actually measuring. And if you look, in the, if you look closely, you'll see that it, it actually talks about re uh, um, 
reachable nodes, which means nodes that are actually accessible to the network. They're not behind a, route, a NAT router, for instance. Um, which can give you some idea for how many nodes are running, but we, this also doesn't tell us how many of them are good. Uh, a node might just connect for a few seconds, download a few blocks, disconnect, you know, connect again, maybe it crashed, maybe it needs to re-download the whole blockchain again. Uh, that's, not a good, that's not a good node, that's actually eating up network resources, it's not providing any resources for anyone else. So, these numbers are really hard to make much sense out of. Um, we know that there are enough nodes out there that are actually doing their job to, to keep the network operating for now, um, but it would be nice to, to know that there's more, uh, there's, there's more incentive for them to keep on actually doing a good job. Um, so, whenever anyone wants to start up a new, a full new, uh, a new node, there's a few really, really big pain points, right? So, anyone who's tried to uh, install a Bitcoin Qt uh, knows that uh, initial blockchain download uh, can take a while. I mean, for some of us that do this like all the time, it's not that big of a deal. Can we wait a few hours and you know a day? We'll, we'll have everything sync. But for most people, I mean, this is a pretty big deal. They're, they're not going to just like say, "Oh yeah, I'm going to like you know hook up my computer to this network and I'm just going to like let it you know do this thing for for." for the, and they don't even have to because there's other people doing it. So there's like this whole uh, you know tragedy of the commons element to it as well. And, of course, it takes up a lot of uh, disk space. I mean, disk space is becoming cheaper and cheaper, but still, um, we're talking about tens of gigs, and it's going to get bigger and bigger and bigger. Uh, and, and this is, this is a, a, a big problem, because it also means, uh, you know, uh, downloads, uh, you know, like the, the, whole, the bandwidth issues. Um, there, there's a lot of problems with this right now. The other uh, big pain point, and this has actually been something that's been causing a lot of problems re recently, is uh, uh, transaction relay and mempool. Um, there's no incentive right now for, for, uh, for people to relay transactions for other people. Uh, so the only measure that we currently have for denial of service is um, basically a hard-coded fee. Uh, it, you, you know, we require that a fee is paid for transactions that are spending dust, etc. However, uh, those fees go to miners. They do not go to the person relaying the transaction. Uh, so this means that people's uh, uh, you know, computer memories are getting full of all these transactions from all these different people. Um, a lot of them might not get mined. And, and then we have the issue of, you know, what if you want to replace a transaction? What if you want to, you know, um, like there's a whole talk about, you know, replace by fee and other kinds of mechanisms to actually be able to, to get, you know, your, your transaction more prioritized. Um, all the logic for that is also externalized onto all these nodes that basically have to be uh, checking your transactions and, 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 and relaying them. So there's a couple, you know, there's a good side to this. I mean, up until like fairly recently, I was actually pretty pessimistic about this, and I thought that really miners were the only ones that are going to have any incentives ever. Um, uh, hopefully, there's like enough good people out there that are going to run full nodes, but uh, that never really satisfied me. But there's been a few developments recently that I'd like to talk about that I think are are making me, you know, that are cause for optimism, at least a little bit of optimism. Um, so one of them is what's been called segregated witness, and the graphics didn't come out on this slide, I don't know what happened. Anyways, um, so uh, this, uh, uh, this is a, a really simple idea, actually, with a very cumbersome name. Uh, I wish we could find a better name for it, but uh, basically the idea is that if you separate the coins from the actual proofs of the, of the, that the coins, were, were, uh, you know, the, the coins were spent according to the rules, uh, it, it can simplify a lot of the synchronization stuff. It can make it so that the incentives to actually hold the proofs can be held by those that actually have incentive to hold them rather than just everyone on the network, um, et cetera. And so there's a couple of really, really big things that, that can be gained here. One is that scripts take a lot of space on transactions. Um, and a lot of the transaction you know, relay right now uh, is basically uh, taken up by, by having to... Most of the blockchain data is actually in the, in the scripts, in the, in the transaction scripts. 
Uh, we can save at least two-thirds of the space by just, you know, getting, those, get, getting rid of that from the blockchain uh, and not having to relay that every single time. Um, it also fixes transaction malleability, uh, which is a really, really important thing, which means that coins are coins regardless of, the, of how they actually got from one point to another. How it, the, the actual signatures, the actual scripts that are used to, to, you know, to uh, authorize the movement of coins uh, are not what the coin is. The coin is just the coin. So this means that uh, you can always identify coins and you, you know, unambiguously point to them regardless of how you actually authorize them to move, uh, which is great. This allows us to do a lot of very interesting stuff that, that we couldn't do without this. So uh, here we can actually download things separately, and this will you know, hopefully allow for, for a better kind of relay architecture that will allow us to be more efficient. Uh, and even if, it, if nobody's getting paid for this, at least uh, it doesn't incur as much cost. And the second thing I want to talk about is payment channels, uh, which is a really, really uh, amazing idea that might make it economically viable to actually uh, incentivize other kinds of stuff. Um, with payment channels, uh, you're separating the actual payment layer from the settlement layer. So um, instead of every single time that you pay someone, it goes into the blockchain and incurs all this overhead for everyone, uh, contracts can be directly negotiated between counterparties and only settle when settlement is needed. Uh, if you use bi-directional payment channels, you can even go a step further because as long as the net is zero, you know, if you have uh, movements in, in both directions, if it nets out at zero, you never actually even need to settle at all. So, so we're talking about the potential for being able to have a payment network built atop uh, the blockchain where actually almost nothing happens on the blockchain itself, which, which is actually an amazing idea. Um, and uh, this is possible because uh, the blockchain is only being used as a sort of um, settlement layer which... Uh, which, which, uh, it's, 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 um, you only need to actually um, do something when there's a dispute. If you're, if you're dealing with someone and they don't pay you or they, they, uh, they refuse to cooperate, at that point you can go to the blockchain and say, this person said they would do this because I have this contract that shows that you know, this was what we agreed on and they didn't follow through and this is what I get, and you're guaranteed a certain settlement. Uh, but that's, again, expensive. That externalizes costs to the entire network. Uh, but at least we can make that happen very infrequently. So that's a, that's a really great thing. Um, but most important of all, I think, is that it, it, makes, economic, it makes it economically viable to do instant micropayments. Uh, this means that now uh, we can incentivize uh, smaller kinds of operations besides just mining blocks. You know, mining a block is a very expensive thing. Uh, at the beginning, you could mine blocks on your laptop, but now you have these entire mining operations and you need mining pools because the variance is just too big. Uh, it's, you know, you're not going to mine a block you know, using small amounts of resources and get paid even a fraction of an amount. You're going to get basically every, you know, a lot or nothing or you have to join a mining pool. With, with uh, micropayments, you can actually incentivize small tasks uh, on the network, like relaying a transaction for someone. Um, and, that, or, you know, and then that allows you to uh, possibly uh, you know, fix some of the issues with, uh, with the incentives. So, Taj is here, and he's going to talk later about the Lightning Network, so I'm not going to get too much into this. But here, uh, we even take this a step further, and we have economically viable, routable instant micropayments. So now it's not just a matter of being, of being able to pay uh, you know, small amounts for specific tasks. Now we can actually have a relay network that uses this entire infrastructure and doesn't externalize the cost to everyone. It only needs to take the path that it needs to. And if you really think about it, um, only the transaction recipient and the miners need to know about the transaction. Uh, everyone else doesn't need to have the transaction related to them. So 
uh, this is also something that I think will, will eventually fix a lot of the incentives issues. Um, so lastly, um, Merkleized proof queries. Right now we have SPV clients that, uh, that you know, require uh, queries to, to servers that are basically consuming resources to construct these proofs. Uh, here with micropayments we could also incentivize the construction of these proofs. So in conclusion, um, can full, news be direct, full nodes be directly incentivized? Um, no, the, the, the bad part is that no, actually it doesn't really make sense to talk about full nodes, it's kind of a misnomer, it's there for historical reasons. But uh, we're able to actually incentivize some of the services on the network which might require running things which actually are good for the network. So that's the positive side of it. Um, if we are able to have you know, efficient structures for doing a, you know, verification and relay, and we're able to uh, have routable instant micropayments, then there's exciting possibilities. Uh, thank you. Today's episode of Let's Talk Bitcoin is brought to you by the Counterparty Foundation. As we come up to the second anniversary of the Counterparty Project, just a month away now, the Counterparty Foundation is happy to announce the first development contest, DevParty, and is inviting developers from all over the world to build new Counterparty integrations with up to 9,500 XCPN prizes available. The DevParty contest is running till February 9th, 2016. To enter the contest, you'll need to register your project via the Google form at counterparty.io devparty, which will help the foundation track what you're doing and keep the community updated as the contest moves along. For more information or to sign up, visit counterparty.io devparty. The magic word for today's episode is contest. That's contest, C-O-N-T-E-S-T. You've got until the 19th of December to visit letstalkbitcoin.com or the Let's Talk Bitcoin iOS app to enter it for your share of the listener rewards. And now, Peter Todd. Peter Todd, Bitcoin Core Developer on the good, bad, and ugly proof of work. Peter? Thank you. So really, I mean, I kind of wanted to kind of give a maybe a bit of a layman's intro to really, like, what is this proof of work thing and really why do we use it, you know? You've probably gotten heard in the media of, you know, proof of work is destroying however many thousands of acres worth of Amazonian rainforest to burn the coal that makes it all happen. But, you know, there's actually some very special things about it. And, you know, I think if you want to understand where this kind of need comes from, well, you got to go look at, I mean, what is Bitcoin supposed to be? And you kind of say it's like, it's supposed to be digital gold. Well, what's gold? It's this magical thing, and I've kind of got some. And when I go give you it, I no longer have it. And we enforce this through the laws of physics, so I can't get an atom and split it in half and, like, recombine it. And that's very simple. Whereas, of course, Bitcoin is based on digital information. And as the Motion Picture Association of America is uh, rather annoyed at, you can copy digital information. And it turns out to be actually really hard to prevent that. They try to do it through lawyers, but we don't really have lawyers in the Bitcoin system, so we have to do something better. And, you know, if you go back a bit, you can kind of think, well, 
where did Bitcoin kind of come from? What's some of the original roots of it? You know, it's really this idea of hash cash, which um, Adam Back went and came up with, I think it worked out to be 2002 or 2001 or so. And hash cash, as Adam Back put it, he was originally thinking in terms of like email spam. You know, you want to prevent people from sending spam, you want to somehow make it expensive. But again, digital data, it's very hard to make things expensive. You know, if you have a central authority, we could say have a list of allowed senders for email, but we don't have that. So we try to find something else that's decentralized, doesn't need that authority. And he came across this very simple idea, well, why don't we go and make a math proof that someone did something really expensive to send you the email? Why didn't, why don't we make it that maybe they spend a few cents worth of electricity to do so? As it turns out, you can easily make a math proof that somebody did some computation that spent a few cents of electricity. This is very easy. And often popular explanations of Hashcash kind of stop there. But another critical thing with Hashcash is in Adam's back system, it was tied to your email. So I want to send you a specific email. I do the Hashcash committing to that specific email. And that proof that I destroyed energy is irrevocably tied to that email. And without that one little detail, well, what could you do? Well, I could go send you an email, and I could send you an email, but they'd be both accompanied by the same hash cache. You know, you no longer have this binding link between the thing I'm trying to do, send you an email, and the energy I destroyed. And cryptography is what lets that binding link exist. And maybe going back, you know, to when it got published, well, I was off in high school at the time, and uh, I saw this paper and thinking, hey, cool, hash cache. You know, at the time, uh, if you ever heard of the Freenet decentralized information network, I was very interested in that. I was just beginning to learn about cryptography. And I probably spent, oh, easy six months thinking about hash cash and trying to figure out, all right, how can I go make digital money out of this? Because I'd heard of e-money schemes at the time, too. And, you know, back then, I, like many other people, thought, hang on a second, why do I want, like, some administrator in control of this? This seems like something that can fail. In much the same way that when I looked at Freenet, I was thinking, well, this is great. There's no longer any central server that can fail, and now I can't get a website. So at the time, I kind of recognized, all right, you got this double spend problem, because I don't want to like, tie my cash to one particular thing I'm going to do. And I probably spent the next six months bothering my dad, who is an economist, but these crazy schemes to try to make a monetary system that would work even if you'd copy money. And of course, I never succeeded, nor did many other people. But Satoshi did have a very clever idea. He said, well, what if we had consensus? What if we go and somehow link all this creation of Hashcash together to get a list of what Hashcash is out there and, where it, and who owns it now? And of course, we call this a blockchain. And you have this series of blocks. And every time you find a little bit of that Hashcash, you link it in that global consensus. And then we have a very simple rule. Well, which one's correct? I mean, I could get one copy of the blockchain from one person, another copy from another person. How do I know which one's right? Well, whichever copy had the most work done. And that's very simple. It gets into consensus. It's not dependent on knowing who anyone actually is. It's just a definition of the system. But this, as much as it works well, this all goes back to burning energy for apparently no particular reason. And I think then we can go ask, well, you know, can we do better? And I think lots of people in the Bitcoin space have tried to do better, um, pretty much from day one. But 
first of all, let's go look at conventional systems. I mean, how do they do better? You know, when I go and send you, so, when I give someone a check, in a sense, you can kind of think of that like a Bitcoin transaction. And you can imagine a world where I could verify all the electronic checks. But ultimately, you know, in the case of a check, I mean, it literally is a, a demand on someone's Someone promises they'll go give me something in return, and I can go to that bank and I can get that money. It's very obfuscated these days with how the financial system works, but ultimately it's based on that trust. And ultimately you kind of have this sort of social consensus in many different layers. I mean, another example is if I, if I go pull out, say, a Canadian bill, might not mean so much to many of the people around here, but you know, back in Canada, we've got this very strong sense of social consensus in that through various mechanisms, I can go trust that this means something. I can trust that this isn't easy to create a copy of. I can trust that there's a limited supply, and it goes back to all these systems. But this is very hard to duplicate with computer programs. Probably the closest people have come is this notion of the thing called proof of stake. So it's this idea that, well, if I know what state the system's in, and I want to determine what's going to be the next state. Who's going to create the next block? I could say, well, why don't we pick randomly from all the people who own a coin? You know, why don't we use some kind of special math and we'll say, you know, if Alice, Bob, and Charlie all each own one coin, we'll pick one of the three at random. And then they can go and sign what they think the next state of the system should be in. And we'll just keep doing this over and over again. This sounds very good. Um, how do we pick who picks at random? I don't know. Why don't we just take the current state and we'll hash it and get a random number out of that and go and let Alice, Bob, or Charlie pick. Problem is this gets kind of recursive. It's like, hang on a second. So I let the people who have the state right now pick the next state. But when they pick the next state, because this is all deterministic, because there's no way to get a random number out of a math problem, now what happens? Do, well, you're going, well, if I'm at this state here, why don't I go and like think 10 steps ahead? and grind through all the possibilities until the future matches a position where I can go do something of value, like maybe get more money in the system, maybe do some transactions I want, or maybe if I know your computer hasn't started up yet, and I did a bunch of transactions sending, selling all my money and getting some gold, why don't I go and use the fact that I used to have a lot of money and I create, create fake history starting from scratch? Well, what actually prevents me from doing this? Nothing. I mean, it's just digital data. You know, there's nothing concrete that prevents me from taking that data, rewriting the algorithm again, and creating a different ledger, a different record. What prevents, you know, maybe the Bank of Canada from doing that? Well, at some point, someone notices, and you start seeing journalists writing articles about how inflation is going up. You know, what prevents my bank doing that? Hopefully, at some point, someone will notice, and ultimately, social consensus will be developed. In proof of stake, it's not really clear how that happens. Probably the, the next kind of iteration on that then is something called slasher. It's this idea of, well, why don't we have proof that somebody did that? I mean, if I have two signatures from the same person for the same state, or from the same state, but two divergent histories, that is proof that they did something bad. Well, with that proof, I can say now, according to the rules of the system, they no longer have the money that they needed to create that proof. But now you have this new problem. If I'm here and you're over there, well, I don't know that I'm necessarily on the same internet as you. I don't know I'm seeing the same information. 
I could be behind a restrictive firewall that's trying to prevent me from learning that someone committed a lot of fraud. You know, ultimately, I'm, all I have is information. And all I know is what information I have. If I never get the information saying that someone actually created fake history, I'm not going to know. You know, and I think the people who came up with Slasher, um, some of the Ethereum developers among others, they recognize this and their solution is, all right, let's go add another level of consensus. Let's somehow have social consensus that we're certain everyone knows that history is this. In the much way that kind of everyone knows that that piece of plastic that I held up with represents Canadian dollar bill. But ultimately we're kind of getting back to trust. You know, we're very fuzzy notions of what things mean to human beings. And can a computer program recognize this? I don't know. I'm not going to say this will never work, but it's certainly a different model than Bitcoin where it's very, very clear. So ultimately, I mean, do we have easy answers to this? I'd say no. You know, if you want a system where what's true or not is based purely on math, where you have these really hard guarantees that if I have a coin and I've had that coin for a week, somebody's going to have to spend a lot of effort, a lot of energy to change it, you kind of get forced on a proof of work. If you're willing to start trusting people, if you're willing to have social mechanisms, if you're willing to make the results of this computer program depend on things other than math, if you're willing to have to sometimes say, well, my wallet says I own money, but according to Reddit, I don't. So maybe I'm going to believe Reddit rather than my software. If you're willing to make those kind of trade-offs, maybe you can do something other than proof of work. But if you're not, I don't really know that there is any other solution. And this is very hard because, you know, money is kind of toxic in a way, in that the moment you add money to a system, to the incentives of a system, well, if I'm some mods on Reddit and I'm in on a fraud, maybe I will go convince other people in the fraud sense or any mentions of a competing version of history. Maybe I'll try to do this selectively for someone. And I have all these incentives. Maybe the incentive is the government says, well, you know what? It's not okay that Mt. Gox lost you know, half a billion dollars on Bitcoin. Let's rewrite history. Currently, Bitcoin seems to have resisted those attempts because the protocol is very clear, the math is very clear. And it's hard to say, you know what? Let's throw away all that energy. Let's move to another branch of history that doesn't have that. But when you start adding social mechanisms, I don't know these things are so secure. You know, we do have the example of Tor, which has a social consensus mechanism. But Tor is in a weird position of being even semi-supported by the US government. You know, would Tor be able to work if somebody started bootstrapping a monetary system on the Tor consensus? I don't really know the answer to this. And having talked to some of the Tor devs, I think they're pretty frightened that it's technically possible. So, you know, I wish I had a better uh, answer to proof of work and burning hundreds of millions of dollars worth of electricity to create a consensus system, but that might be the best we've got. So I'll leave you with that. Thank you. Today's episode of Let's Talk Bitcoin is brought to you by the Counterparty Foundation at counterparty.io. Content for today's episode comes to us from the Future of Digital Currency Conference, Eric and Peter. Music for today's show was provided by Jared Rubens and General Fuzz. Any questions or comments? Email Adam at letstalkbitcoin.com. Have a good one.